The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful once again for the chance to come together with friends, with our family in Christ, to study your word, to hear of your love for us, to hear of your grace and mercy, and to, uh, by your grace and mercy, respond uh, to your call upon our lives. We thank you for St. Paul and for his love for his protege, uh, St. Timothy. Thank you for Timothy hearing that call, and we thank you for the um, preservation of this, this exchange that we have been given, and for the wisdom that we can glean from it. We pray now as we turn to First Timothy that you would help us to lead uh, in our own spheres of influence according to your will and by your Spirit, and only uh, for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, uh, we are turning now to what... Uh, called the Pastoral Epistles. Um, we're actually, I don't think, going to look at Titus, but we will look at 1 Timothy this week and 2 Timothy next week. Today is chapter 86 and chapter 87 in the Essential 100. So the Pastoral Epistles are 1 and 2 Timothy and then the letter to Titus. Paul is writing personally to his young protégés. Uh, he's writing to encourage them, to instruct them uh, in church leadership uh, because church leadership is hard. Uh, I don't know if you um, uh, know that, but it's, it's really not that easy of a job. Um, I mean, it is for me, but Elaine has a tough time with it. So, um, the, uh, that's, act, that's actually uh, backwards. Uh, but the... Um, but, you know, Timothy was a, a key figure in, in Paul's ministry. Uh, we, we meet him in Acts chapter 16. We, in Acts chapter 16, we, we see where Paul meets this young man, probably in his late teens at that point. Uh, and at this point, as he's writing, he's probably in his late 20s, early 30s. And, um, but when we, if, we, if you look at 2 Corinthians, or at Philippians and Colossians, or at 1 and 2 Thessalonians... All of them, in verse 1, where it says, Paul, a servant of Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Like it's, he is one of the authors, uh, one of the people who is sending these, uh, these letters to these churches. So it's, uh, he was that close to Paul. Uh, in our, uh, as he's addressing him today, Paul uh, writes him in the, uh, in the usual greeting, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So, I mean, he just has this incredibly close relationship, this fatherly relationship. He's not his dad, his biological father, but he's his spiritual father. Uh, you may have uh, or have had some, some men or women in your lives that, that served as uh, spiritual fathers or mothers, uh, mentors in your life. I certainly have, and I'm so grateful uh, for them. Even when they pass on, they continue to teach us and, and um, their legacy lives in us. Um, so this, we have a real treasure uh, in First and Second Timothy. Timothy had been, uh, had been stationed in the important city of Ephesus. Uh, we know that Ephesus uh, housed uh, one of the churches that Paul dearly loved. We read in Acts of Paul meeting with the Ephesian elders 
And when he sees them, he knows it's going to be the last time he sees them. They're all kneeling together on the beach just weeping because they love each other so much and they're going to be, they're departing and they won't see each other again in this life. Um, and so it was no small thing for Paul to leave Timothy to, the, uh, to proctor um, and oversee the Ephesian church. In fact, the Ephesian church had lots of great teachers, Apollos and Sosthenes, and, uh, but Timothy was certainly right up there. And we hear, right at the beginning of the letter, we hear the purpose of uh, both Timothy being placed there and also the purpose of the letter. Where Paul writes, uh, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and myths, and in endless golly, I need more coffee. <laughs> Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That is the purpose of Timothy being there, and that is the purpose of Paul writing to encourage him. Timothy's there to steer the Ephesian church away from false doctrine and from false teachers who would teach that false doctrine. Now, um, why, would, why is that so important? Paul says because they uh, promote speculations rather than stewardship from God. What? I mean, what does that mean? We, that sounds kind of bible right? <laughs> kind of churchy. Um, what does that mean that um, these myths, endless genealogies promote speculations rather than um, stewardship is he t- that is from God. Is he, is he talking about money? What, what's he talking about? Faith and works? Well, he is. He does actually address um, in verse 8, he addresses uh, the law and a proper understanding of the law. So there may have been some of that for sure. What do you think? Some translations, this is the English Standard Version, that's how it translates. Some, some uh, translated empty speculations, or it promotes controversy, uh, rather than, and uh, this word for stewardship is strange. The one is translated stewardship, but, but it's not always translated stewardship. Some say uh, edification, or for building up. And the word has to do, um, it's like, Oikodamos or something like that, but it's um, it's it has to do with uh, an actual building, and so we say it's it's a building up. Well, I think the NIV translates it advancing God's work, so it promotes speculation or uh, controversy rather than advancing God's work. That's the stewardship uh, stewardship we think of, and I preached on a couple of weeks ago uh, as managing the affairs or property of another. And so stewardship in this sense would be advancing God's work, not our own. But, it, but it's, it's really has to do, the word itself has to do with building up the body of Christ. Edifying, you know, the word edifice is a building. Edifying uh, is a building up. You know, edifying the, word, um, the body of Christ. And these endless uh, gen- genealogies, um, 
who is your daddy's daddy's daddy, and, and using that to sort of give you some sort of spiritual pedigree. Um, if you ask somebody, you know, are you a Christian? No, but my great-grandfather was a preacher. Well, I'm, <laughs> great, but... Um, the um, the uh, and, and speculation, this constant a- answering of questions. I saw a... Uh, I, I referenced the Babylon Bee every now and then, and it talked about... Um, it was, again, Babylon Bee can be sort of snarky, but it talked about a, a, a non-denominational church that hosted a historic question and question session. Like, there was no answer. It was just questions and questions and questions, which uh, I thought was funny. But um, you had to be there, I guess. The, um, so, but you can imagine. So here's, here's, here's why I left you here, Paul, uh, Paul says to Timothy. Here's why I left you here, Timothy, uh, to root out false doctrine. I mean that doesn't sound very inclusive, right? And you can imagine, well, okay, well I've got to muscle up. I've got to, I've got to come in like a wrecking ball, and um, and and the content of the message is critically important for Timothy. And how is he going to do this? Well, Paul says that equally important to the content of his message is that the way he conveys this message it has integrity to the content. Equally important is the integrity of the leader's actions to the content of the message. So he says this, right on the heels of saying, steer him away from false doctrine. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Read that again. This is verse 5 in chapter 1. Obviously, I'm not going to get all the way through all six chapters of 1 Timothy. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, I would say, and others would say, scholars would say, that this is actually the governing verse for the entire letter of 1 Timothy. That everything he tells Timothy to do should be seen through this lens And everything he tells Timothy to require of others should be seen through this lens. We are not here to be right, although being right is important. We are here to reflect and embody the character of God, who is right, but who also is love. Right? And so what he says is the aim... Or the end is the telos, is the Greek word, the, the, um, the final destination, the place that we are headed with this commandment is love. That is agape, right? Which issues, which comes from, so what he's saying is that the love that we are aiming for uh, comes from three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And what I want, I want to take a few minutes to think about each of those things. Uh, almost like a, like a three-point uh, sort of teaching. So, what is, as you understand it, you've heard people talk about agape love, agape. What, what is that? What is agape love? Doc, what do you think? I think it's love, God's love. 
God's own love. God's own love. Yes. But what distinguishes it? I mean, what is? It's self-serving. It's not. It's not. Uh, doesn't seek its own. It doesn't. It's not self-serving. It doesn't seek its own. It's. It's. It seeks to love without expectation of return. Somebody might call that a one-way love, yes. right? Yes. I'm going to love you no matter what you do for me. Okay. And it's a love which is not based on what humanity thinks. This is totally from God. So there's no lust or any indication that there's anything except totality of love itself. Yeah, so this is a, a, a divine love, a total love, not a, not a lust, not a consumeristic love. You know, a lot of times when people in our culture, when they say, and I, I, like I always talk about this in um, premarital counseling, that a lot of people, when we say, I love you, what we mean is, I love what you do for me. Yes. Right? We, we approach uh, relationships like consumers. Sure, that's the way people. Yeah, ML said that's the way that people look at God. Also, I love it. You know, I love what you do for me, God. Not I love you, but I love how you love me. You know, and, and so, um, and in fact, what, one thing to insert there is that we are um, we're not Christians because Christianity it works, it does, but we're Christians because Christianity is true, right? It, it, it um uh, it works because it's true, not the other way around. So um, now it issues or it, it stems from it is the um, composite of three things that are in place uh, in the life of the Christian leader that are all working together. So remember so the title of this this class is Christian Leadership Part One, and next week we'll do Second Timothy. That'll be part two. And in e- each of you is a Christian leader. You might be in charge of something in the church, or you might be uh, simply um, setting an example in your neighborhood or your family. But you're leading um, if you're if people recognize you as a Christian. And he says three things work together: a pure heart. Now, what is what does Paul mean when he talks about your heart? When you invite Jesus into your heart, are you inviting him into an organ that pumps blood throughout your body? I knew I always tell the story about Caroline. I may have just told a couple weeks ago that she was three and she went to the doctor and and, and the doctor said, "Oh, Caroline, I hear your heart." And she said, "Do you hear Jesus?" You know, like, I, you know, like, is he in there? You know, I've actually prayed over people before heart surgery, like, Lord, protect your house. This is where you live. Is, is my right to pray that? Maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah, I told you that. Yes. Yeah. Is this the residence right here? It's your soul that's involved. So it's the soul. So, so actually the heart is not just the organ that pumps blood, but it is the seat of your emotions. Your emotional core, your hypothalamus, some might say. You know, it's it actually sometimes in your Bible it translates what's the word heart. If you go back in the Greek, it's actually kidneys or intestines. <clears throat> Sounds kind of gross, but we say you know I feel it in my gut. You know, but that's kind of what they meant. Like it's it's the seat of our emotions, and it's um, and so what he is calling us to. Uh, we we think of it a lot of as you know. I'm, the Lord is in my heart, but we—it it is really that God would, is governing our emotions. Our emotions are subject 
to the will and the governance of God and the Holy Spirit? Is, is it easy for you to have your emotions subject to the will of God? No. Why not? Because I'm great. Because you're great. <laughs> ML is great. ML is good. Let us thank her for our food. Yes. Um, why is it so hard to control our emotions? Your emotions, I mean, your emotions are the most natural thing about you. When somebody crosses you, somebody cuts you off in traffic, you just want to lay on the horn, you know, tell them they're number one. Um, and um, why is it so hard to have our emotions governed by the will of the Spirit? I think that point right there is uh, where your spirit is and your heart is, is where wisdom finds expression. Where wisdom finds expression. God is wisdom. Yes. And he expresses himself through us. Mm-hmm. But if we're not willing to give up the idea that we have so much merit in ourselves, we don't need anything else. That's what the brokenness of the world is. Yes, that's what the brokenness of the world is. Why would God why would Paul be so concerned with the cleanliness or the purity of our emotional core? That word pure is the word um uh, Catharos was the word we get catharsis from. Like a, it's cleansing, a, cle- a clean. Uh, what? Why? Um, why is Paul concerned with the purity of our emotional core? Don't face God. God cannot look on anything that is not pure and perfect. God cannot face anything or look on anything that's not pure. Imperfect, but you know, you know, you're actually made perfect. You're declared to be perfect in Christ. So why does it matter that we, as leaders, um, that we, if we're already declared clean, why does it matter that we submit our emotional being? It's like what's what you are filled up with is what comes out. Like what you're filled up with comes out, and you're actually expressing. I mean, people look at you. You're not saved by your works, but you're saved to them. And, and, and you will actually be known in the world by them, and so will Christ be it's known by our works. It comes out of you that's not what goes in, because everything that goes in that's from God is pure. But it's what we do with it and mess it up so badly in our own spirits. Yes. And we spew it out and say, oh, this is the way it should be, because I'm not going to do this way. I'm always going to be disobedient. Right. Our, our inclination is self-service. And the Christian leader is shaped by the gospel, which is a self-emptying love, a one-way love. Let's move on to the good conscience. Not just a clear conscience, but a good conscience. What is the conscience? Conscience is the um, moral mechanism that we have to determine right and wrong. Right? Good describes the godliness of one's moral compass. A good conscience. That is, I am measuring my decision-making against the will and the character of God. That's what we do as Christian leaders. Now, we don't do it perfectly, I mean, I promise you, Amy will be first to back me up on this, that Christian leaders uh, need to repent often. 
But, um, but it is our duty as Christians to uh, have our conscience, not just our emotions, but our conscience shaped by uh, the gospel. Um, we're governed by Christ. We're ruled by the Holy Spirit, directed. We're submitted to Him. The King James translates sincere faith as faith unfeigned. So we have pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. Faith unfeigned. When you feign something, you uh, pretend, you act. So not a pretending faith. The word actually is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, you know, a hypocrite was a, was a stage actor. One who put on a mask in Greek culture to act as if they were someone else. And that was the word that hypocrisy came from. And, and so this is a faith that is not putting on a mask, but is actually naked and unashamed, right? Is, um, is, uh, faith in Jesus is not simply declared, but is lived. And so, and, and remember, we're talking about Christian leadership. We're not talking about salvation. Salvation is not in any stretch by the works that you have done or the perfection with which you have done it. But leadership, that is how we um, act as Christians in the world in order to a world uh, to proclaim to a watching world that Christ is Lord, that Christian leadership must be shaped uh, by the gospel. And all of these things, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, they work together to produce agape, right? A self-emptying, one-way love. That is the aim of our charge. We are not here to just kick out the false teachers. There's a story uh, uh, in Acts of Apollos, who was a really good teacher, and Priscilla, who was Paul's disciple, takes Apollos and teaches him the way of God more accurately. Right? And he eats it up. He's all about it. Because he actually was sincere in his faith. He, was, he did not have the expectation that he got it all right. He wasn't here to say, well, you may say that, but you're a Baptist and I'm a Methodist. So I'm going to, you know, like he, he, he goes after the truth and he submits himself. He's not proud. And he goes on to be one of the great teachers. In, in fact, so great that people said, you know, I follow Apollos. You follow Paul, but I follow Apollos. That was one of the issues in uh, Corinth, I believe, is, is what it was. But um, So all these work together for agape. Paul says, we're not against people. We want Christ to be exalted. And false teaching does not exalt Christ. But love, does some, so we're not, but love doesn't just say whatever you say is okay. right? Love corrects. Love rebukes with love. right? I mean, you think about, I, I talk about in my sermon today, some of you have already... Uh, heard it, it, it uh, this um, Brant John and the, uh, the the young man who forgave his brother's killer. You saw this; it was all over the internet on Thursday. I looked for it on Friday, and <laughs> news had passed it by. But um, it still can't. There's a lot about it. He's Brant John is offering this incredible forgiveness. What gets looked gets overlooked is that Allison John, their mother, is calling for justice. And she is, um, she is saying, she was not, she she was moved, but she was not angry. There were some definitely some people who were angry about the um, 
the length of the sentence and such. But she is calling for justice and calling for correction within the department and for right action. And that is no less Christian. Like that's kind of the other side of the coin. Now I want to start with forgiveness. And forgiveness is the thing that got lifted up in the internet. But, um, but, but the call for the rebuke is just as important and can be just as loving. Now it can be done in an unloving way, but I don't think she did that. I think she, she was um, tempered uh, in her, by her faith. She came at that rebuke with a um, pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Um, so you know how like when government agents, I don't know what the name of them are, you, you, some of you might, um, name of government agents who work against counterfeiting? What are, what are those? Pardon me? Oh, the Secret Service is like against like $100 bills that were printed. Secret Service does that? Treasury. Yeah. Okay, we're not arguing about who does it. That's not, that's not the... That's yeah. So we're going to go back to agape. Um, the uh, <laughs> Pure heart. So, you know how they, they learn to uh, identify counterfeits. You, I'm sure you know this. They, they don't look at a bunch of examples of counterfeit money. They look at the real thing. All right? They look at actual, real dollar bills. Hundreds, fifties, twenties, whatever. And um, so that when they see something that is not right, then they will be able to recognize it. We actually, I mean, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time going through the arguments of the false teachers and, and telling us why those are wrong. He just shows us what's right. So that we can uh, have a, uh, the ability to recognize that which is um, counterfeit. So... Um, so he focuses on Christ. He focuses on the real thing. Now, I want to, we're going to move over to chapter 3, and we're going to read through and discuss a little bit the uh, qualities of uh, church leaders. But I want to say that in chapter 2, Paul kind of steps in a little bit, uh, in a way particularly for us as um, progressive Western uh, Episcopalians. Some <coughs> He talks about women in ministry. And... I, will say, I, I need to say this, um, and I'm, this is all I'm going to say about it, that uh, Paul employed women in ministry. Uh, Priscilla was, uh, certainly comes to mind. Lydia is another. Uh, Jesus seemed to have high regard uh, for women in his, in his inner circle. I don't think he was married by, by, any, by any stretch. But um, a lot of what Paul says in his letters is, was very progressive for his time in terms of the, um, the way that people were to treat men, were, were to treat women. The call for men to love their wives as Christ loved the church was unheard of and would have been very uh, offensive, but it was certainly controversial in his day. And yet it is easy for us to focus on see something like women should be silent and, um, and get, kind of get up in arms. And I understand why that would be. And, and I just want to say that I really think that Paul... And I'm, I, I'm, this is not unanimous Christian, um, Christian opinion, but uh, I really think Paul is speaking in a particular context. It would be very um, um, it would be very strange for Paul to lack continuity, to say women should be silent and to also employ Priscilla and Lydia. Um, so I think that um, 
I think that, I mean, Priscilla was the one who grabbed Apollos. So she was important. I think that, um, I think he's speaking to a specific context in Ephesus. And rather than um, fight for a particular civil right, he wanted to establish the truth of the gospel and to do that in a way that the culture could hear it. Now again, that is, I, I don't really want to take a lot of, I don't want to get lost in debating that. Um, but this is the reason why some people don't like St. Paul. Um, they, don't, they don't want to listen to him because he doesn't say what, what people what feels comfortable to us. But I'm very comfortable with, personally, with women's ordination, with women being bishops and so forth. Um, not just priests, but I, I think that, uh, and I can hold that, at least in my own mind, uh, with the scripture saying that this was for this specific context. So. Joe, this is just a cultural question. Yes, ma'am. What is it with the braided hair? Did somebody, it refers that women shouldn't braid their hair. And I thought maybe somebody would know why braided hair was so bad. Um, why was braided hair so bad? Uh, it was a, it was just a fashion faux pas. Um, you know. Um, really, I'm serious. I'm going like. I I think it has to do with um, it, it, with promoting one's own beauty, oh. and it's sort of a vanity. Oh, okay. So just leaving your hair flow would be. More natural? I don't know. I mean, like, I, it's this. Let me let me promise you that if we got into this, it would stop. The, I mean, oh, we would. Yeah. Biblical scholar would be able to answer the question, but oh well. Um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna delete that part of the uh, recording. So so let's let's please God move forward um, to. Uh, and to chapter 3, where he says, uh, this saying is trustworthy. Now, he, when Paul says that a few times, and, and when he says, this saying is trustworthy, bing, pay attention, this is good. He says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Um, the word overseer translates the word Greek word episkopos, from which we get the word episcopal, which means bishop. So the King James translates this, if anyone desires to the office of bishop. Now, again, he's not talking about guys in purple shirts and pointy hats. I mean, he, this is not developed uh, far enough along. This is like the year 60 A.D. And so, um, so what he would have seen as an overseer uh, was, would not have been nearly what we think of as a bishop. But it was, certainly would have been someone who had some regional responsibility I mean, they were just house churches for the most part. And so Timothy's job as the bishop or the overseer of these house churches was to help them uh, teach and do- uh, have good doctrine. Um, but it wasn't his job alone. And so when he's raising up other overseers to kind of see, well, you take this neighborhood and I'll take that neighborhood over here. Um, that He says what's, what is important is, um, is their character. And this is what he, he talks about. Now remember, if, this, if he's speaking into this culture that needs women to be silent, then he's going to speak about raising up men. But I think we, we can do our own homework and, and figure out how to translate this uh, for women as well. Because the important thing for a, a Christian leader is their character, the character of their faith. And an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled respectable, 
hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Well, it's been nice knowing you people. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jeez. Four, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Whew. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is a pretty, pretty high bar. Um, I've, I've known priests that were not able to teach. <laughs> and some, I've known people who are incredible teachers who were not uh, ordained. Likewise, I've known, um, you know, I've I've known folks to fall into alcoholism or um, other forms of addiction, uh, violent temper. I've had that myself. Quarrelsome. I think we all um, often look around the world around us, a lover of money, and uh, thinking if I just had made this much more, everything would be okay, or whatever it was, or I'm worth this, or whatever. These are not things to say, okay, he checks the box, then he can become a leader. But as leaders, we must always measure ourselves against. Again, tempering our emotions and our natural inclinations by the governance of the Holy Spirit. So, you will not find a minister uh, that meets all these qualifications. But I hope and pray that you find many, many ministers who want to and who, um, whose lives are characterized by repentance and a seeking after the will of God. Yes, thank you, ML. If you didn't hear, she said, that's what keeps us pr- you praying for, for me and for Trent. Um, so an overseer is a leader. A deacon is a servant. Um, and it's always been that way. And it's pretty much that way. Even though like different denominations have different meanings for the word deacon, it's rarely those in leadership, but it's those in spiritual leadership. Um, like lay, Maybe sometimes it's almost like lay leadership, although it's, it's, they're sort of ordained to it. Like in the Baptist church, they have deacons. That's different from the elders. The elders oversee the working of the church. The deacons oversee the spiritual aspect of the church. Our deacons are a little bit different, but they're still servants. Um, Beth Lunsford, Beth Renal is, is in a process to become a, an ordained deacon. And I hope she'll be placed here um, when that happens, but probably another year before she's ordained. But it's, um, it's a servant, uh, both of the church and of the community. And deacons, likewise, in the same manner as the character of a leader, the deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued. That is not saying one thing to one person, saying another to another, not prone to gossip. 
not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise. So not just them, but, but the household, the character of the household is important as well. It must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Why is the character of the faith and the outworking of the life of a Christian leader so important? Why can't it just be like I'm good at my job, I clock out, and I go do whatever I want? Because maybe, I mean, like, I don't know what your job is. You have, I look around, there's various levels of employment and, and histories of uh, employment, but a lot of jobs you can do that, right? They don't care what you do after you clock out. Why is that not possible for Christian leadership? 24, uh, 24-7 uh, commitment. It's a 24-7 commitment. And you're always under the scrutiny. There's some times I don't answer my phone, I'll tell you. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you mean by that? That means that, that at times when we would not answer our phones, but you should answer yours. Yes, it, okay. You're, you're a servant, and so you're, you're to serve. Mm-hmm. Well, I think all of us were witnesses. We're on. We're all we're witnesses. That's right. We're on for the we're world to see. To, yes. We're the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Connie said, "We're the Bible." I mean, you used to say in, in young life, "You may be the only Bible someone ever any, ever reads." You know, that's, a, that's an important statement. Yes, Josh. I think you know, a, a deacon or, or a bishop or a church leader, it's the difference between a role and a task. You know, our most of our jobs are tasks. You know, they're not reflective necessarily of who we are. I go do my job, and it's not really who I am. But the church leader is a, a role that, like, you know, is who you are more so. That's why it doesn't turn off. Mm-hmm. Like, carpenter turns off when you leave the job, you know, mm-hmm. the shop or the job site. Yeah. You know, whereas the church leader never turns off. Right. I was installed as the rector of this church. That's my job. But I was ordained as a priest. That's who, that's a that's a vocation. That's that's who I am. All the time. It's a reflection of, of God. That's right. Now I will say this: you're not let, you're not off the hook, you know, because you you know you we're all uh, witnesses all the time, and and, and given it, you do well. You're not saved by it. You're saved to it, right? You you do well to um, to bear witness and submit your own uh, conscience and faith uh, to Christ. Yes. What we ask of you all in that role is to live in a glass house. You're never concealed. Right. You don't have a right Well, I, and they'll say, we, we live in, a, in as essence. clergy, we live in a glass house, and that, that does feel, uh, I mean, for many, it feels suffocating. I will say, we, we feel very cared for and loved and supported uh, in, in this context, and um, and we, we all work, feel like we're all on the same team, but, but yes, I mean, it is, it is, there's a sense in which we are 
uh, always on. You want to, yes, love, how can, help me out here. No, um, I'm just thinking, you know, like, because we're talking, you're talking to everyone here as, like, all Christian leaders, and, you know, you got to be this and this and this and this and this. I mean, and there's a little bit of, like, a, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like, as you're saying this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, you know, thinking about for us, but also, I think in that, like two things. Number one is if you're called to, as, as you're called to it, there's also a freedom in knowing it's not, you know, it, it's God. It's like, I feel like all of that is surmised by Lord, make us an instrument of you. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't worry about, like, checking off all those boxes all the time. Like, we're toast. But, like, just Lord, you live through us. And when we screw it up, let us openly repent. And but like just like that, that's like the final yeah. Like God, Jesus does all that stuff. So Lord, you just you you live through us. Right. <laughs> well, I think I think you're I think you're absolutely right about that. In fact, I think you're so right that we'll end it right there. Um, but thank you so much. It's a good discussion, humbling uh, for sure. Uh, there's certainly much more to talk about in, in uh, pages of First Timothy, uh, and we'll tackle Second Timothy. Let me say too before we go that there's some donuts left, and y'all we can't throw those away. So God be with you, and uh, we'll see you in church. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, sign up, may, uh, sign in. Make sure you signed in. Uh, we're counting uh, our Christian education, so thank you very much for that. And if you are interested in taking the class on how to teach a class that will start after the 10.30 service next week. And uh, we'd really like for you to be involved in that. So sign up with Elaine. God bless you.